This morning's uh, scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3. Please follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Genesis chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound of the gar- I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Last week, we looked at the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. We saw that they had been just chilling out in God's perfect place, enduring perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with one another, 
so perfect that the end of chapter 2, we were told that they were naked and unashamed. But then Satan came along and started asking leading questions. For, for all intents and purposes, he, he tempted them to doubt the goodness of God. They were tempted to believe that, that God doesn't know nor want what's best for them. They were tempted to de-God God, to put themselves in the place of God, to, to stand in judgment over what God had already said. They were tempted to declare what was in fact good and evil apart from God, apart from what God had said. And Adam and Eve did what you and I would have done. In fact, they did what you and I have done so many times over. They rebelled against God. God very clearly said, you shall not do this, and they said, we're doing it anyway. God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate. Eve first, and then she hands it to her husband, who's standing there the whole time, and he ate. And this is what we refer to as the fall of man. This right here is where everything started to go wrong in God's perfect creation. And in verses 7 through 24, we get into the results of the fall, which is our focal point today. So if you're not already there, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Again, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 24. Starting in verses 7 through 13, we see what we might call the first signs of the fall before God even begins to pronounce judgment. Notice first the horizontal results of the fall. Adam and Eve, who were both created in the image of God, living out their God-given roles with Adam as leader and protector and Eve as his helper, following his, following his lead. And the, the two had become one flesh in God's perfect garden, again, enjoying perfect fellowship with God and with one another to the extent that at the end of chapter 2, they're naked and unashamed. And now, now, they realize they're naked and now they're quite ashamed. This couple who prior had no concerns what the other thought of them, this couple who could give to one another freely, completely know the other, and be completely known, now hide from one another. They sow fig leaves to hide behind, and we've all been hiding ever since. I mean, just think of some of the countless ways we hide from one another. At a very real, deep level, we all want to be known. And yet, at another real level, we all work very hard not to be known. Social media, to me, is a great example of this. Why does it even exist? Think about it. Why are people even on it? And I, I'm on it, so I can ask myself that question. And I'm sure there's countless reasons, and they are different for different people. But at a very foundational level, People want to connect with other people. They want to be known. And yet social media is such a great place to hide, isn't it? To, to touch up the photograph. To, to present a picture of yourself that is not really real. And yet you present it as real. And there's your fig leaf, right? It's a, it's a covering. It's, it's a smokescreen. 
And, and we do this in so many areas in our lives. What's more, though, as we look back at the text, this, this hiding isn't just at the horizontal level, is it? For Adam and Eve actually try to hide from God. This, this is actually almost funny to the reader. I think it's presented so that you almost laugh at them, except for it's so painful as we have a front row seat. God is, of course, the one who spoke two chapters earlier, and the world came into existence, right? He is the sovereign creator over all things. He is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-everything that is good. And as the writer of Psalm 139 says, you cannot hide from God. And yet that's precisely what they try to do, right? Eve, look out, God's coming. <laughs> Take cover. That, 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 that fig leaf, that's going to be good camo, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's painful, but it, but it is almost humorous. Moses wants to show us sin makes us stupid, right? He didn't have the old TV show Cops to illustrate that. If, you know, if you've seen that show, you know what I'm talking about. You see very clearly sin makes you stupid, right? If you've raised young children, you've seen that there too. I remember a time where one of my kids, who shall remain nameless, found some markers, and he was wearing nothing but a pair of short shorts and a smile, and he went to town on himself with this marker. I mean, he had a sweet mustache. He had his arms, his chest, his legs. I mean, he looked like he was tatted up from the rooter to the tutor. And he comes walking upstairs from, from the basement, and it's like, hey, bud, did you draw on yourself with a marker? No. I'm like, Are, really? Because... You look like you did, and you still have the marker in your hand. No, I, I didn't. I mean, Brandy and I had to, like, turn around and not look at him so he didn't see that we were actually laughing. Sin makes you stupid. And that's what's going on here. Adam and Eve have put themselves in the place of God. They have willfully broken the one command they were given, and now God comes to visit in the cool of the day, perhaps in the evening, and they make for cover. I notice that... When God engages, this is important, notice who he goes after. He goes right after the man. This is important for our understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood. Eve sinned first. I think we can all agree with that, right? You kind of, the, the flow is pretty easy to understand. Eve sinned first, yet God goes right after the man. But remember, we said that God created male and female equal in essence but with different roles in the marriage. The man and the woman are both created in the image of God, and yet God created the man to lead the marriage and the woman to follow his lead as his helper. And again, you read the narrative, and it's clear Adam's standing there the whole time, and yet he's passive. He, he does nothing. As Eve's leader, as one called by God to work and guard that garden, at some point in the interaction, certainly by the time Satan says, God didn't really say that, Adam should have stepped up and said, look here, you little snake. You don't come slithering into this garden where I'm supposed to lead and protect my wife, guard this garden, and now you're questioning the good God who gave us all of this? Enough's enough. And at some point, he stomps the head of the snake, and he throws his carcass out of the garden. But that's not what he did. He did nothing. 
like so many men in our homes. He passively sat there and watched his wife be fooled by the evil one. The New Testament elaborates on this. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, Adam was created first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived by the snake, but the woman was. So so think about it. The woman was deceived. The man willfully disobeyed. He watched the snake mock his God and lead his wife to dishonor God. And he made the willful choice to himself rebel against his maker. And thus, while Eve sinned first, God questions the man. He holds the man completely accountable for the fall. And each one of God's questions that he asks of Adam are for the purpose of helping Adam to see his own sin. Please be clear, our omniscient God is not asking Adam questions because he doesn't know the answer. These questions are God's pedagogical tool to make Adam's sin very clear to Adam. He asks first, Adam, where are you? To which Adam brilliantly replies, "Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hiding from you, God. I heard you walking in the garden, as you always do, and I went and hid because I was naked. Next question. Hmm. Who told you you were naked? And this is that point, if if Adam was Homer Simpson, you would have heard, don't, from behind wherever he was hiding in, right? I mean, this is the, uh uh-oh, I'm caught red-handed moment that we've all experienced in our lives. Who told you you were naked, Adam? Did you eat of the tree? I specifically commanded you not to eat. He was done. He was caught dead to rights. And so what does he do? Well, he does what any good sinner does. He does what you've done. He does what I've done. He launches off into full-scale blame-shifting. Caught red-handed, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. He makes one last valiant attempt. He blames the woman. It's it's her fault, God. I I was standing there watching ESPN, catching up on scores. She hands me what I thought was a bacon cheeseburger, and I ate, and lo and behold, it wasn't the cheeseburger. It It was the fruit that you said don't eat. I mean, we've all done this. In fact, Time precludes a deep dive here, but I think this is another proof that there is indeed a God and He has indeed given us a conscience and that we really do know right and wrong because when we're wrong, we want to blame someone else because we feel naked and ashamed before God. If those darn kids didn't make me so angry, I wouldn't have yelled at them. It's the kids' fault. If that lady would just pull out into the intersection when there's a, a gap the size of, uh, of, of a small, you know, whatever, I could fit two trucks in, in that. If she would have just pulled out, I wouldn't be yelling. I wouldn't be mad. It's her fault. We've all, we've all done it, right? What's more, Adam doesn't just blame Eve. Did you, did you catch that? He does another thing we all will do. He has the audacity to blame God. Adam, what have you done? Well, it was the woman who, by the way, 
you gave me. Remember that? I was doing just fine in the garden. I was chilling with the animals. Things were, things were good. I didn't ask for her. It was your idea. You made her. You gave her to me. Therefore, I'm thinking you're the problem, God. And again, we've all done this in one way or another, haven't we? I was doing just fine until blank happened. You fill in the blank. It's going to be different for all of us. I was doing just fine before that happened. And given that you're sovereign over everything, you screwed things up for me. I blame you, God. And friends, that's some nasty stuff. And, and, and while God's going to come back to Adam, for now he moves on to Eve. He says to the woman, what is it that you've done? Now, the woman follows her husband's fantastic example, and, and so she too shifts the blame. Only she blames the serpent. She, she becomes the first charismatic, right? She blames the devil for her sin. The, the, the devil made me do it. And now God's done with the questioning, as he doesn't question the serpent, for as Ken Matthews says, the tempter has nothing to learn from the Lord. And so God goes right into the specifics of the judgment and while the judgment is horrible, while it's a very bad day, we do see the grace of God abounding even in his righteous judgment, not least in the fact that you see that God curses the devil and the earth, but he doesn't curse the man and the woman. Instead, he demonstrates his care for them in making them garments of animal skins. He meets them where they're at. He also makes a glorious promise, but we'll come to that. We need to start with Satan. It's where he starts. He says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I think we could summarize the curse on Satan here as humiliation and defeat. He starts in verse 14 with the curse on the serpent. And it does seem here that it's a curse on actual serpents, for they would be lowly, they would slither on the ground, they would eat dust for food, though read redemptive historically like we must, read typologically. We know this is pointing to Satan, who would be humiliated and ultimately defeated. In fact, that's where he goes in verse 15, where God makes it clear that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And while they would harm one another, the location of the blow demonstrates the severity thereof. The seed of the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman would ultimately crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Both strikes go together. And this is a glorious promise of the coming of Christ that we're going to just put off to the side for a minute until we run through the rest of these pronouncements of judgment. For the woman and the man, we need to notice that their judgment comes in their primary roles that God has given each of them. First, the woman. Notice that judgment for the woman comes in the realm of bearing children and her relationship with her husband. Here we see that as a result of the fall, there will be pain and suffering in both of these realms. First, there's pain in childbearing. And the specific curse is on the, the bearing of children, but I, I think you can include in that the raising of children. And I trust I don't need to tell any of the women here in this room of the pain in childbearing and the pain that goes with child rearing, right? It's hard. 
There's, there's pain in the childbearing, in the child rearing. There's, there's emotional pain. There's all sorts of struggles. There'd be pain and toil in childbirth and child rearing. What's more, there would be pain and toil in the most important relationship she has, that, which, that with her husband. Here we read, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, you could read that sort of positively. Your, your desire will be for your husband. You'll want him, you know. And, but the fact that the exact same phrase is used in the next chapter really helps us understand this better. In Genesis 4-7, Cain is angry because his offering was not accepted by God. And God sees that he's angry, and he warns Cain of the dangers. He says, Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In other words, God is telling Cain, sin wants to rule over you. It wants to overtake you, overpower you, but you must not let that happen. You must rule over it. So this clash of the titans here, and you, you put that in the husband and wife relationship, and we understand that God is telling us that because of the fall, the woman will struggle mightily with her role of being the helper. She will struggle with the idea of submitting to her husband and following his lead. Her desire will be to rule over her man, to take, take the lead there in the home, but the man will indeed rule over his wife. And the result of, with the result of the fall, the man's ruling over his wife will not always be the godly, loving leadership that man was created to do before the fall. We know this is true, don't we? I mean, it's why counselors are so busy with marriage counseling. We feel this every day in our marriages. Now, this passage tells us one of the results of the fall is strife within our very homes. Wives often seeking power and control within the home. Husbands fighting back, often ruling in an ungodly, unbiblical way. And the result for the woman is pain and suffering in the most important relationship she has, which is very painful as a relational being, right? So the results of the fall are felt by her day in and day out. What's more, the results of the fall are felt by the man in his God-given role as well, given that the man is called by God to be the primary provider for the family. In the pre-fall state, man was called to work the garden. So we, we want to be clear, work itself is not a result of the fall, okay? Sometimes that's taught, and that's just wrong. Work is a good thing. The issue is the toil and the pain in work that comes as a result of the fall. God says, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and men, this is not a text you can go to and say, you don't have to listen to your wife. That's not the point. The point here is that he listened to his wife over listening to God. And thus God says, because you followed your wife instead of following me, cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Remember, in the garden... You had wonderful fruit-bearing trees, seed-bearing trees. They, they did most of the work for you, and now the ground would be full of thorns and thistles. And only by the sweat of your face, he says, will you eat. I know, I don't think we have any farmers or coal miners in here, but consider those as illustrations of how hard work can be. You think of the farmer up before the rooster's crow. 
out all day working in the hot sun, and one monster storm comes across and possibly wipes out your crops for the entire year. Or how about the coal miner down in a dangerous, dirty hole, soot all over your face, working hard, breathing in dangerous air, and all that goes with that. I know many of us work in air-conditioned offices, but that doesn't mean we don't feel the effects of the fall in the realm of work. We all deal with problems every single day, whether it's issues with coworkers, issues with clients, perhaps it's the very equipment that you're supposed to be working on. We all know work is hard. There's toil, there's pain. Those under you don't always do their jobs, and so sometimes you have to end up doing it. Those over you sometimes lord it over you. It's hard. It's one of the reasons they have to pay you to come do it. What's more, we do see that as a result of the fall, we will surely die, just as God said in chapter 2. Satan says, surely you won't, right? He's a liar. God says, surely you will, and well... Here God says, work will be hard all the days of your life, and then when your life is over, you who were originally made of dust will return to the dust. In other words, death is going to get you. Death, what Paul calls our great enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, will find every single one of us. That the biggest thing every one of our souls is fighting against is death, and medicine, a healthy diet, whatever is not going to keep this enemy at bay. It's coming for all of us because of the fall. And that's certainly clear at the end of the passage when we see Adam and Eve exiled from the garden. In verses 22 to 24, we see the Lord God say, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Therefore, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And he actually doesn't even finish the sentence. It's as though it's too painful of a thought for man to continue on for eternity in the state of sin. And thus God says, instead, I will drive him out of the garden. I will drive him away from this perfect place, away from this perfect place of fellowship. Remember, that's the unique place God met with his people. So they'd be driven away from the garden, away from the tree of life, thus they would die. And since Adam and Eve failed to guard the garden as they were told. Notice God put somebody in their place. God sets cherubim in their place who would, in fact, guard the garden, guard the tree of life. The tree of life would not be available again until the new heaven and new earth when the curse is finally reversed. So, so this is a bad day, right? This is, this is bad stuff. This is painful But I said earlier that we see the grace of God in the midst of all of this, and it's all over the place. Think about it. As bad as death is, living forever in sin would be even worse. See, in God's grace, He had a plan in place to rescue us from us, to rescue us from our own sin, to redeem us in Christ, to deal with the sin problem, to deal with the death problem, so we could indeed live forever without sin. The whole plan then is grace. Thus God drives the man and the woman away from the garden until one from the line of the woman could come and overturn the curse and God's redeemed could dwell with him without sin for all eternity. 
And we get a hint of this in Adam's naming of Eve in verse 20, for she would be the mother of all the living. And that's certainly connected to verse 15, where we're told that one from her line, so one of her children's 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 children's, one of those kind of things, one of the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent who tempted them, thus turning the whole thing around. And so we'll see, as we go on from here, that the focal point of Genesis is tracing this line. Oh, there's other subplots, there's other related plots that build into this, but we're going to be tracing this line, filling out this glorious promise that stands over the rest of the book, indeed that stands over the rest of the Bible. And of course, we know how the story ends. We know it's all pointing to Jesus. God promises to crush the heel of the seed of the woman while also promising to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And both of these occur in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Right there in the midst of the darkest day, right there at the fall, the light of the gospel shines sort of in the background. Right at the very beginning, you have the sure hope That this seed of the woman, who by the way is going to go through people like Seth and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, that he's going to come along and fulfill this promise that flows into other promises that we see in Genesis. And Paul makes this so clear in Galatians 3.16. Flip over there with me. Genesis 3.15, Galatians 3.16, man, those two texts, and you've got a big part of the story. Flip over to Galatians 3.16. Some of your translations will use the word seed, some offspring. I'm not going to get into theory of translation. They should say the same thing all the way through. It would really be helpful because this is a key theme. I mean, I think the word seed is good here. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham, right? The promises pivot off of Genesis 3.15. They unfold, right? We're going to see more promises that flow from that. The promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seed, and look what the divine interpreter, the divine commentator says, divinely inspired commentator, I should say, and to your seed who is Christ. So so Paul is making it very clear to us, the promise here in Genesis 3.15 is gloriously fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The unfolding narrative of God's redemption goes out of its way to demonstrate for us how the Lord Jesus is the promised seed of the woman who would come on the scene. In the fullness of time, Jesus, the Son of God, would empty himself by adding flesh to his divinity. He would live the perfect, spotless, sinless life, succeeding where the first Adam failed. He would go to the cross where he would bear all of the sin of all who would trust in him so that our sins would be removed from God's accounting as far as the east is from the west, praise God. In and through the cross and resurrection, King Jesus would begin that process of overturning the curse. On Good Friday... Satan is almost certainly laughing and and celebrating as he's crushing the heel 
of the seed of the woman. But on Easter Sunday, Satan no doubt realized his head was being crushed through that entire process. That's what Paul's telling us in Colossians 2.15 when he says, through Jesus' work on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. If you were here for the Ephesians series, you know that in Ephesians and Colossians, these rulers and authorities, it's speaking of Satan and his minions. So through Jesus' work on the cross, God disarmed Satan and his minions. He, He put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. That's a glorious verse. Jesus the long-awaited seed of the woman came to defeat the enemy and overturn the curse. And let me just pause there. You might be here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ. And this is so incredibly important. What we're looking at is really God's giving us an understanding of the world around us and how we fit into it, right? In our pastoral prayer, John prayed about war. So many horrible things happened as a result of the fall. And yet, we also know so many horrible things happen within. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. Every single one of us. Every single one of us have rejected God for who He is. God created us to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. We've all said, no thanks to that. I'll take the gifts that you give and worship those and seek to enjoy them forever. We've all rebelled against God. We all deserve His punishment. And yet we see from the very beginning, God had a glorious, amazing plan in place to rescue us, to save us. He sent His Son who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, succeeded where Adam and Eve failed, right? And he went to the cross, and on the cross, he bore our sin. He bore the punishment we deserve to bear. Through his resurrection, he conquered death, our great enemy. And friend, through Christ, we can have relationship with our Creator restored. It starts now and goes for all eternity. And so I would, I would plead with you, look to Jesus. J- Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I, I would plead with you, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin, follow Christ, submit to him as your Lord, your master. For believers, While we indeed live in a fallen world and feel the effects of it every single day, we can rejoice that Jesus, the long-awaited seed of the woman, came and defeated sin, death, and the devil. And just as sure as we see that God has indeed fulfilled His promise from Genesis 3.15, we can be equally sure that He will fulfill all of His promises remaining promises. When Jesus comes again and ushers in the new heaven and new earth where we will dwell in the very presence of God, in God's perfect place where there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, only joy 
for all eternity. We can rejoice in that. We can hold fast to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And now as we go to the Lord's table, I pray that you would help us to think even more about what Christ has done for us. And I just pray that you would grow and build our faith even through this. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.